Welcome to Distressed Situations, a Reed Smith podcast. On this podcast, we cover current issues in financial restructuring over a wide variety of industries. I'm Keith Arzeda, a partner in Reed Smith's Global Restructuring and Insolvency Group, and I'm one of the hosts of this podcast. Whether your company is a financial institution or in industry, we hope our commentary will be useful in managing the risks associated with distress. If you have any questions about our topics, feel free to contact our speakers. Welcome, everyone, to the newest episode of our Distress Situations podcast. I'm Michael Venditto. I am a partner in the Restructuring and Insolvency Group at Reed Smith, based in our New York office. Joining me today is our special guest, Andrea Pincus. Andrea is a senior legal counsel at Santander Bank, based in New York. And Andrea has an extensive background in bankruptcy, insolvency, litigation, and distress situations. So Andrea is joining us today to talk a little bit about the perspective in-house counsel in dealing with the current economic situation. So Andrea, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Full disclosure, Andrea and I have worked together in the past, so we know each other, and we have both spent quite a bit of time prowling around the areas of restructuring and bankruptcy. So the idea for our conversation today is that during 2020, the COVID pandemic instigated the largest drop in quarterly GDP, record levels of unemployment, and the highest levels of bankruptcy activity that we've seen since the 2008 financial crisis. And Andrea and I were both veterans of that wave as well as other waves. So we have a perspective in terms of what we think we're going to see over the coming year. So let's begin. Andrea, are you back in your office? Oh, no. No, no, no. Uh, No, we started to work from home on March 13th in New York, as did most of New York's workforce with the various restrictions that came down from the city and the state. And I have been working from home since then, as has the rest of my legal team and most of the the bankers and support staff at Santander. Well, I guess you're in the same boat as a lot of us, especially in some of the larger cities around the world. But let me ask you for some 2020 hindsight, even though I know you're a forward-looking professional. (laughs) But 2020 is in your rearview mirror. How do you think banks were able to weather the storm? From what I saw, banks weathered the storm very well. I think as, as institutions, the stress was on our clients for the most part, and the stress on our clients required us to be adaptable and, and flexible in the way in which we worked with clients, whether it was with respect to the liquidity they had under existing lines, for those in, in more stress to address forbearance agreements, to be uh, mindful about ways in which we worked with them on a go-forward basis in the midst of the crisis, and often just to be a sounding board as our clients were trying to figure out what made sense and what types of, of businesses they should prioritize and what types of transactions they should prioritize. But I think for the most part, the financial institutions have been on very solid ground, and it's been a much more challenging year for clients, the corporate clients across the U.S. and internationally. Well, now that we're dug into 2021, what's keeping you up at night? Uh, We are seeing a significant uptick in clients that are in distress, in requests for forbearance, the prospects of insolvency filings, and 
you know, the, the, in the US, the PPP loans and then second round two and, and main street lending has, has gone far to kind of stave off in many ways the, the collapse of a number of businesses. The PPP has for the most part is done or some clients are getting a second wave. Businesses are still unable to reopen in many places around the US. Certain industries are particularly hard hit and not going to be able to open again or in the ways that they were. So as we think about that internally, we think, well, how do we stay on top of all the clients that we need to assist to figure out what we can help them um, salvage and manage and move forward? Which clients are going to end up in default and how are we going to work through that with the volume of these transactions that are distressed? Do we have the workforce? both on the business side and workouts, as well as in legal? Do we have the documents? And what kind of documents? What are the sort of, what's the global perspective or sort of holistic approach to a client that has many different touch points with the institution to make sure that if they are either going through a restructuring or they're ending up in an insolvency, we know where all of our documents are. And for relationships that go back over years, some, as our bank has grown somewhat organically and also through merger, there are documents in different databases. There are databases that don't talk to each other. People talk to each other fine, but it's hard to make sure, you know, you have everything at your fingertips. You really have to work at that. So making sure we have a good 360 view of clients um, and their situation to understand what our relationship is with them in the moments of distress. Now, I take it for you at least that the workout volume is up. The workout volume is up. It's up. And that runs the gamut of clients who are asking for a forbearance for a short period of time, clients who are looking to restructure their obligations, and clients that are in default. There's a, there's a range. Now, statistically, 2020 saw the biggest increase in large Chapter 11 filing since 2008 financial crisis. Do you think that's the tip of the iceberg, or is that the whole Megillah? No, I don't think it's the whole Megillah. I think it's the tip of the iceberg, but I think it's an iceberg that's a bit more nuanced. I think that we saw a lot of big companies that had failings across different industries and geographies. I think we're going to see a lot of smaller companies that are equally in distress. I think global companies in some ways were able to weather better, playing off of their geographic diversity and sometimes the support that they received in other regions of the world whether through government or just the way the businesses were structured. I think in the U.S., we're seeing a lot of smaller businesses that really didn't have the bandwidth to stay closed for a long, long time or to have such a reduction in force for such a long time, particularly in, in areas that are hard hit by COVID where there's still a lot of business closures. And I think that's just going to that's gonna keep going. Now, it's been my experience that in the current environment, we're seeing large businesses that have access to the capital markets are able to raise money. They can borrow at, at discounted rates because there's liquidity available for those big companies. But what are you seeing for the more middle market and, and smaller sized businesses? Do you think that they're going to be able to weather the storm with the access to capital? I think it's more challenging for them. I think that some will. I think bigger companies with bigger lines that they were able to draw down and tie themselves over were in, in better stead than smaller companies that 
rely on their sales. They rely on their sales force. They rely on turnover. I mean, you look at sort of the smaller restaurants, retail, bookstores, and you think bookstores would be up. People would be staying home and reading a lot of books, but the, the brick and mortar stores had a lot of you know, real life issues with rents that they couldn't meet because they just didn't have the foot traffic and a lot of the business shifted to online. Um, and so you see, you see that pressure on smaller kinds of clients. I mean, the challenge for I think, any financial institution is to figure out, you know, how to assist clients, your, your, your borrowers, your, 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 your borrowers, your, uh, larger and smaller commercial clients to weather it? You know, is it through forbearances? Is it a question of just waiting till stores can reopen again? Is it a question of uh, being able to pull back in a workforce? Or have you lost that workforce for good? Have people shut, you know, moved away because they can't afford to live where they're not working? I think for us and for any institution with a large mid-market, mid-market, upper business banking, sort of mid-level and, and practice as well as larger commercial clients, both, but you need to really be thoughtful and understand your clients' businesses and their capacity to manage this downturn. Now, over the last decade or so, the trend in restructuring has been to move away from the in-court restructuring, at least in a freefall restructuring, and more towards pre-negotiated, pre-PACs, or out-of-court restructurings. Do you think that trend will hold in the coming year? I think it will hold. I think it's going to take somewhat of a hit, you know, but a total failure in a bankruptcy, a liquidation, a you know, marshalling and sell-off of assets to make payments to creditors, is always going to be a compromise, right? Or virtually always. It's the rare case that goes into a chapter 11 and comes out better than it's gone in. It's happened. It's happened. But, you know, that's not the case. So I think that there's still a lot of pressure, you know, in the industry to, to see how clients can work with their institutions to stave off a total meltdown. For some businesses, though, it's just not going to be possible. Because there's too many factors that weigh against them and the pandemic stretches on. But I, I think so I think we'll see more insolvency filings. I don't think we're gonna see free fall filings so much. I think that that on the side of borrowers and on the side of lenders, there's a lot of communication. And that's important too. Despite the pandemic, despite working from home, despite not being able to physically go and see your client and take a tour of their facility. The the importance of communicating is even more um, highlighted. And while that's a challenge with everybody working separately remotely and dealing with their internet issues and various, you know, getting zoomed out and, and coming up with all different platforms, I think that communication has really been a priority, certainly at our institution and I'm sure at others too, to be able to really understand what our clients need and, and where we can meet them in order to avoid that just all out default. But in some cases, there's nothing more that can be done. If, mm -hmm. if this coming cycle is going to result in more restructurings and workouts, do you think lenders are ready to deal with these problems? They have the bandwidth, they have the people? Well, they'll need to be, right? So I think that a number of institutions are going to find themselves hiring. I think that there's going to be a need for both loan workout officers with experience and uh, the energy to move through 
a vol- voluminous book potentially of transactions and workout or, or uh, loans and workout. And then I think internal legal teams are going to need to staff up both lawyers and paralegals and whatever the structure is of the institution. I think for financial institutions, which have clients that are national or clients that are, are global or at least in a number of different jurisdictions, there's also going to be a need to understand like, like we all had to when Lehman collapsed and like we've had to at other points in the crisis where you've got the global impact. You have multiple jurisdictions that might impact a client. How do you coordinate? How does the client coordinate around geographies and how does the institution coordinate around geographies? Although I think that we'll feel it mostly in the US more so than in other regions. And I think that's because we have such a receptive bankruptcy code and bankruptcy court sort of system and process that encourages institutions to try and find ways to work out through chapter 11 rather than just to default and liquidate. But I I think that staffing up is going to need to be a priority, at least on some level in most institutions. Now, at least so far in the pandemic, we've seen the government try to intervene and, and flood the economy with capital to make some policy changes to help businesses. With the new administration in place, there is a a new series of programs being advocated in Congress and by the administration. Do you think we're going to see enough liquidity in the marketplace that businesses will be able to hold on long enough to restructure? Or are we facing sort of a tsunami of liquidation? I certainly hope we'll see enough liquidity that clients can hang on and restructure and weather this. I think it's not just a question of how much liquidity, but how quickly can that liquidity get out there? If you have a business that's getting a lot of pressure to pay rent and it's unable to generate the revenues to pay the rent, it's got to figure out, you know, it, it needs a way to continue to survive. If you've got employees who've been laid off, they can't afford where they live and they've completely left the geography where their business was located to move in with other people right? and they can't afford to move back and they can't afford to go back into the workforce where they had been. That's going to be an issue that's going to have legs and, right, and impact a business's ability to retool. I think in some businesses, I don't know whether it's free fall, but I think there's going to be a lot of challenge in certain industries You know, where if you live in a big urban environment, Offices are closed, largely closed. And with all offices closed and people working from home, you don't have commuting. That's impacting the municipalities and you don't have, you know, they're not generating the the fees for the subways, the buses, the commuter trains. You've got all of the local businesses around the midtowns that are not seeing business. They're not seeing their clients. They're not getting, you know, the restaurants are failing and the Shoemakers are shutting down and the clothing stores are becoming empty lots. So I think that those businesses, a lot of them have been very hard hit. And unless there's an ability to reopen with safe spaces for people to work in, I do think that it's going to be very hard. And I think the longer it takes for there to be liquidity, and honestly, you know, the longer it takes for there to be a comprehensive vaccine rollout where you've got employees with confidence and, you know, sort of the energy to, to go back into the office space or back into contact with other people, back to work, it's going to be very challenging. 
So I think liquidity is important. I think the pace is important. I think helping people manage their own personal expenses through the unemployment or through deferment of evictions, I think all of those kinds of things enable communities to come back. But the longer it takes for the the money and the relief and the and the vaccinations to roll out, the harder and harder it will be. We're going on a year. You know, your comment there raises two questions in my mind. First, then I'll, I'll just lay them out there and then maybe you can answer them one at a time. First is the stress on governments, and I'm not talking about the federal government so much, or even the state governments, but municipalities, school districts, taxing districts, etc., mm-hmm. where there's a demand for more service to help us through the pandemic, yet there's a substantial reduction or interruption in their tax base and tax collections. That's going to have an impact on these governmental entities. And, and, and do you see, foresee problems there and their inability to meet their obligations on bonds and so on? That's my first question. And then the second question is that this is largely a consumer-driven economy. What happens if the consumer demand doesn't come back? So you want to take a crack at answering those two questions? Sure, just little questions. I think that municipalities are strained. I think that, I mean, I see it, we live in New York City, and, I, and in New York City, um, you know, my perspective is, I was going to say it's provincial, I live here, so I, I see what I see here. Without the tax base, you don't have all the funds that you need to repair and run the subways and the buses, right? We've taken the subways offline at midnight. New York subways were 24-7. Now they were taken out. Now they're offline at midnight to clean them and keep them safer. And particularly for an extended period of time for essential workers going back and forth. But the ridership is so down and that ridership generates, now those people pay for their rides. Without paying for their rides, you don't have the funds to, to keep up that means of transportation. Without the tax base from all of the stores, all the, the, the folks renting, their workspaces, that's a real issue. And with a number of people moving out of the city, people who pay taxes based on their income, moving out of the city and moving to other states, whether they either have a second home or another home or other families, that impacts it as well. And I think what you'll see is maybe not defaults on, on their bonds, but I think where we'll see it more so is in, in some ways more painful in the day to day where People will lose their jobs, or their, you know, or or schools will be more crowded, or the infrastructure repairs, you know, fewer teachers, more rundown buildings, more problems with the roads, court calendars being longer, you know, hiring freezes, and I think that those issues, you know, are, are really going to be very concrete. You know, that all of the various services that cities and states provide: health, fire, police road work, emergency services, all of that needs to get paid for. And and the choices that municipalities are going to have to make, I think are going to be challenging unless there is, you know, also some kind of relief that comes out of potentially out of government bills and efforts to to increase liquidity around the country. I think also in jurisdictions where many, many people have become ill have been hospitalized, have died. I mean, that's happened. It happened in New York, first wave of that in the spring of last year. You know, there were a lot of people 
lost. There are a lot of people who work who were who were lost to COVID. And so that takes a while to to come back from, both psychologically, I think, and in terms of a workforce. So I think we'll feel it. I don't know if it's going to roll out to the defaults of the municipalities, but certainly squeezed municipalities and where there are prospects for them to potentially refinance aspects of their projects and works. I wouldn't be surprised if they saw that. Remind me now, your second question? The second question was, we have a largely consumer-driven economy. Mm. Do you see return of consumer confidence and spending getting the economy rolling again? Or is that going to happen in 2021? Or are we, we looking at a longer timeline? I think it's going to go by industries. Fashion's taken a hit. Shoes have taken a hit. Travel has taken a big hit because people aren't going and they're you know not leaving their house. And what you wear to work, what you do for your recreational time, much of that depends on leaving your home and having an experience outside. So until people feel comfortable sitting in a theater, a movie theater, or a, a stadium, or a Broadway show, right? That's gonna that spending. It's not on on consumer goods you'd bring home, but it's on that you know, entertainment world. I think people are investing in technology. Technology seems to do okay when these kind of crises, because everybody needs to build out their home office. But people are. And people may need cars as a safe way to travel. And so I think automobiles and bicycles, those kinds of purchases, for a while in New York, you couldn't find bicycles or helmets, nowhere. People were going out of state to try and find them, just to to buy used ones, to have them to get around. Big sale on that. But I think there are certain industries that are really hard hit because people don't they find they don't need as much if they're not going out so much. They have to start going out again in order to need to buy things or want to buy things. And I think until people are sure that their jobs are going to come back on some level, even if it's not to the same level as before, or if it is to at the same level as before, you know, there's a hesitancy about spending because there's a concern about employment. So I think those that's going to take a while. I think it's going to take a while. So when lenders look at their customers who are in stress and they have to make a decision as to how to deal with them. I mean, there is forbearance, acceleration, restatement, restructuring. Mm-hmm. How do you start to work through that decision tree? Well, for any client, you're looking at the relationship. What you know, many of these relationships have been relationships for in place for years. With a should be in in the onboarding and growth of a client relationship a good understanding through whoever is a relationship manager um, for that client and the different uh, parts of the institution that work with the client, there should be an understanding of really what that client is capable of doing to manage their costs, to forestall certain big obligations, and to either retool or, or branch. So we, we talk with our clients about where they are, what they can do, what they're doing to survive how much time they think they need, you know, what the expenses are. And really, I think the first thing is to, to make sure you understand where your client is in the moment. You know, that it shouldn't come as a surprise entirely because you should be following that relationship. You should be understanding what their ability is to grow as their obligations to the, to the institution grow. But I think that that's first, right? Take stock of where your client is. What are, what are their obligations 
to, to your institution, but also what are their assets and what are their plans? How are they managing the people? What are their priorities? What region are they in? What's going on in that area? What's their capacity to, on their own, make certain changes? Or how much are they going to be beholden to whatever rules and regulations are coming at them from the local uh, governments or state governments? So I, I think there's there's a lot of, you know, it, it's individualized. But of course, in every institution, you want to pull together all the exposure, understand what it is, figure out the date and time frames, and how much how much breathing room is needed for them to stabilize or stay on their feet. Now, large institutions such as yours have workout teams internally. And as you suggested, they're, they're busier, going to get busier. Do you foresee a demand for having to move some of that work to outside advisors, restructuring professionals, accountants, and legal counsel? I, I do. I do. I think that it's done thoughtfully, though. You know, I mean, all of us who are working in-house are doing the, the, the most we can and the best we can to manage costs as well, right? And so uh, it is the exception more so than the rule that, that work would go to outside counsel, but certainly where we, or I shouldn't say it's the exception rather than the rule, but it's done in a, it has to be done in a thoughtful way. And in the first instance, we need to review and see what it is that we can do and what makes sense for us to do. When cases are filed, someone has to appear in court. There's active litigation. We have outside counsel. Well, we're dealing with forbearance, default notices, forbearance, acceleration, and we're really dealing directly with the client. It typically is the internal legal handling that. Where the volume of those matters, though, hits a certain sort of peak or, or sustained intensity, then it can become more than an in-house team can handle to stay on top of it in a timely way just because of the volume. And then it's helpful to have counsel who have the flexibility to take work from us, that, you know, and, and I, I don't, by us, I don't just mean Santander, but I mean in any institution to have counsel who can help manage that ebb and flow and, and deal with the, you know, the volume when it's, it's overwhelming to a team. You wouldn't want anything to fall through the cracks and to do it at a, at a, at a price point that's sensitive to the institution so that we can manage it and continue to, to move forward. So I think it's um, important to have your know, trusted advisors who understand what you do and how you do it and can come up with cost effective ways to help ease the burden internal counsel. And, and be mindful at the same time that for internal counsel, there's definitely a lot of pressure to get as much work done as we can internally as a way to manage costs and expenses, saving counsel for the most part for the more complex, more high volume, more litigious matters. Just from my own perspective as outside counsel, I, I find that the smaller the business is, the harder they are to reorganize um, because they have a yeah. need for restructuring expertise that they can't often afford the cost of doing so. So that's going to probably put even more stress on you. One final question before we wrap up our session today, and that is, what is your personal view of the year 2021? And where is it taking us? Oh, I sincerely hope it takes us out of our living rooms and out of our bedrooms and back into the world and, and for a professional and personal life. I think that, you know, in Santander, we haven't missed a beat. 
We've been working hard, working well, supporting our teams, and it's been actually pretty seamless to work from home. But it's not the same as working in an office with colleagues and bouncing ideas off of one another quickly and having ready access to your, in a financial institution, your business clients, in other businesses, your colleagues. And, and I hope that with you know, the gradual rollout of vaccines and the stability of the economy, um, and as we move forward after the tumultuous election year that was last year and just, we hope a period of, of relative stability coming out of this pandemic, that people are going to be eager to connect and to reconnect as safe as we can be with whatever limits on our social distancing as we can embrace um, to the point where we can try and get back to normal. And I think that is going to be a driver for people to be together, see each other, and get back into the economies around them in, you know, in the workforce. I do think that the challenge is having worked from home um, and having become more sort of internal within our own walls over these last almost whatever 11 months, that in some ways, you know, well, in many ways, so businesses know they don't need the same footprint they had before because you can get work done without everybody in space at the same time. So I think workplaces will be different. And I think that in some ways we're going to have to challenge ourselves to, to reach out. Some of us can't wait to get out the door and just hang out with our colleagues and our friends and our families. And others are finding that it is pretty easy to avoid the commute and, you know, roll out of bed to your desk in the living room or your desk in the bedroom. Personally, I, I like my open office plan at the office fine. And I find that having an open work plan at home with family, which has been pretty good because I enjoy my family, it's, it's harder at home than it is in the office. I think it's easier not to be home 24-7, um, even if I have live-in tech support from a fabulous uh, 20-something. Well, maybe we'll have to catch up later on in the year to see how much of your prognostications have uh, proven true, and we can grade you on your ability as a prognosticator. So, Andrea, thank you so much for joining us today for Reed Smith's episode of Distress Situations. And to all of you who've joined us today, I hope you found our discussion to be informative. Please join us again for our next episode of Distress Situations. Thank you. Distressed Situations is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's restructuring and insolvency practice, please email distressedsituations at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and on our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved.